Thank you, Barry, worship team. Good morning. Well, if you would, turn your Bible to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're looking at chapter 1, verses 7 to 10 this morning. Barry noted Miss Millie passed immediately into the presence of Christ. There is no soul sleep. When a person dies, they immediately pass into eternity. There's only two options. There are those who are in Christ, they pass into the presence of God. Those who are not in Christ, we don't even want to even conceive what eternity holds. That's one of the reasons missions is so important, and today I want us to announce the Lottie Moon goal here at Fisherville for our Lottie Moon season. $66,000 is going to be our goal. Now, every time I've set that goal, uh, I've thought this is going to be the year we don't reach it. I, my faith is still in process, uh, but God has continued to provide every year through the sacrificial giving of his people. 100% of that money goes to the international missionaries. They are able to go to places that you and I will never be able to go to. They're going to the hard places, the 1040 window, places where it's illegal to be a Christian. And this is one of the ways you could participate. In fact, in the text we're looking at today, if we believe this text, we will put our money where our mouth is. And so I want you to be praying about how you can give sacrificially $66,000. The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We're just going to ask him to sell some of that cattle. And that's our goal. And the International Mission Board has its goal. I've not heard what their, their goal is. But please be praying that the International Mission Board reaches its goal so that we can resource these missionaries. 100% of the money goes on the ground. There are no administrative costs involved. 100% goes to the missionaries on the ground, and they are doing a mighty work. God is saving the nations so that the nations might be glad in him, Psalm 67. Well, you would look with me in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. Again, Paul began this sentence. It's one sentence in the original language. From verses 3 to 14, one sentence. And we saw that he began this sentence by praising the Father. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenlies, in the heavenly places, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now he's laying out the reasons for this praise, this blessing. Verse 7, he says, in him, that is Christ, the beloved. Notice verse 6, he's blessed us in the beloved, and now in him, that is the beloved. This is the beloved son, the son in whom the Father is well pleased. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, that is Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mystery revealed to your people. That is a grace to us. 
it's also a stewardship responsibility. May we steward what you reveal to us in this text today by the obedience of faith. Give us ears to hear, O Lord, and hearts that will be warmed to your gospel of grace. And we ask this for your son's sake. Amen. What would things look like if Satan took control of a city? Well, in the mid-20th century, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who had a national radio show at the time on CBS radio, who was an evangelical pastor, preacher, he posed that question on national radio. What would things look like? Now, all of us have an idea of what things would look like if a city, a, a culture, a nation uh, were controlled by Satan. But his answer may not be what you would expect. Now, this is just one of many ways, I think, that the satanic impulses in a culture can be expressed. But it's an intriguing answer. Here's what he says. All of the bars would be closed. Pornography banished. And pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be filled every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Sobering words. All of these things that we consider noble things, good things, where Christ is not preached. Think about this. A Christless, a crossless world of general morality and manners. Well, here's the problem with that. It's an illusion. It's an utter illusion. It's an illusion in part due to the common grace restraints that God gives a culture that preserves us, restrains us from expressing the fullness of our, our sinfulness, our depravity, our pollution, our corruption. There's the common grace restraint of the conscience. God has made us his image bearers and he has written the law on our hearts. And so that conscience of ours is a personal restraint. Uh, and in part, we, we, we have a sense of right and wrong. And, and guilt plagues us when we do things that are wrong until your conscience is seared. We, we, we have a fear of disappointing people. We have a fear of being shamed. And so the conscience serves as a restraint. Another restraint is the family. And that's why this trend today of single-parent homes is creating chaos in the culture. That seems to be the blaring issue that no one wants to discuss in our culture. 
single-parent homes. But here's the deal. Family serves as a common grace restraint, relational restraints. Children need a mom and a dad. They need the nuclear family. Then there's the civil authority restraints. Those are societal restraints. We don't run red lights because of fear of receiving a ticket. We don't, we don't do certain things in public because of the civil authority restraints. And we praise God for those civil authority restraints. There's a movement today that wants to get rid of those civil authority restraints. It's insane. And then there's even the church which serves as a spiritual restraint. So you have these common grace restraints, all of which can lead to a kind of common virtue that we exhibit in our world and in our cities and in our cultures. But while all these factors may subdue the sinful disposition of the heart, they don't eradicate the sinful disposition of the heart. In fact, they often obscure the hostility that we naturally have towards God and His law. What we need is more than moral restraints or immoral uh, restraints. What we need more is than immorality. We need a Savior. We need a Redeemer, and we have one, and the Apostle Paul knows that. He, he, he recognizes that. He, he has experienced that himself as one who was a violent persecutor of the church, and God, by His sovereign grace, redeemed him so graciously and mightily. And that's why he breaks out in praise. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first reason he gave for breaking out in praise was God's electing grace, God the Father. We saw that in verses 3 to 6. Now today, Paul, in a sense, shifts from the Father to the Son. Now in a sense, because it's vital for us to remember that since God is one indivisible being in all his works, all three persons are involved inseparately in our salvation. Indeed, as I said in verses 3 to 14, there's one sentence in the original language. And in this one sentence, it's very Trinitarian. We see the Father's will, we see the Son's work, and we see the Spirit's witness. So whereas verses 4 to 6, the, the focus is on the Father, verses 7 to 10, the focus is now on the Son, as Paul is giving us the reasons for his praise. And the first thing we see here is the blessing of redemption in Jesus Christ. Notice with me in verse 7. In Him, that is the Beloved, of verse 6, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now, in this one verse, verse 7, we see the person 
we see the price and the pardon that comes to us according to the riches of God's grace. Now, Paul here uses two terms to teach us something of the work of God's beloved according to his grace. Redemption and forgiveness. You want to alliterate that. Redemption and remission. The remission of our sins. Both of these terms contribute to the mountain peak truth that we're going to see in verse 10. I'm going to make the argument that verse 10 is the highest thought in all of Scripture with regard to what God is doing by His gracious purposes. And so these two terms, redemption and forgiveness, are going to contribute to that mountain peak truth in verse 10, where God is reclaiming something that has gone off the rails, all right, and making it right again. That's what he's doing. Now, as for redemption, it would be impossible for us to overestimate the importance of this term. In him, we have redemption. Uh, In fact, the 19th century theologian and early 20th century theologian, B.B. Warfield, who was a longtime professor at Princeton when Princeton actually believed something, on September 17, 1915, at Princeton Theological Seminary, he was speaking to the incoming first-year students. And here's what he said. He said in his speech... There is no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. This is because Redeemer is the name specifically of the Christ of the cross. Whenever we pronounce it, the Christ, the cross, is placarded. Before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance. Not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he has paid a mighty price for it. And so what does it mean when Paul says, in him we have redemption? It denotes the ransoming of someone from captivity. The ransoming of someone from slavery. It's the purchasing of someone who is enslaved. It's paying the price for their freedom. Now, this very word occurs ten times in the New Testament. Seven of those times are with the Apostle Paul. But the concept is not just something that appears out of nowhere... In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is drawing deeply from the Old Testament. And in particular, when God redeemed Israel out of Egypt. In fact, in Exodus 6.6, and I'm convinced, as many are, that Paul is meditating on that one verse. Here's what he says. Here's what Moses writes in Exodus 6.6. God is speaking through Moses, I will deliver you from slavery. So this is before 
the plagues. This is before the Exodus. He says, I will deliver you from slavery and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, which speaks to his power, okay, and his care. All right? He says, and with great acts of judgment. And so we recognize, and Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 5, for instance, when he calls Jesus our Passover lamb. And when Luke even speaks about the exodus that Jesus Christ himself is going to accomplish by the cross, we recognize that the exodus out of Egypt happened in time and space. It's a real historical occurrence, but it also was a shadow event. It was intended to point beyond itself to something even greater. We recognize that Israel was enslaved politically. But that enslavement speaks to something that's even more sinister. And that is our enslavement to sin. In fact, if you look over in chapter 2 of our text, just one page over. Paul is going to describe our human condition. Now I want you to keep this in mind. It's, in, it's impossible to ask a person to adopt a Christian view of the gospel unless they have a Christian view of sin. All right? Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And we see some bitter words in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Notice, you were dead, your trespasses and sins. That's our condition apart from redemption. Dead in our trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of the world. Now I want you to notice, we follow in our natural state the course of this world. What does that mean? That means we are captive to sinful culture. A fish doesn't know it's wet. And we are captive to the sinful culture that we are born into. Notice as well, following, the second verb there, following the prince of the power of the air. What does that mean? That means that Satan provokes our sin condition with his lies. All right? And then notice in verse 3, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, the cravings of our flesh. We followed the cravings of our flesh. That is, our, our, compulsive, our compulsion towards sinful appetites. That was our condition prior to our Redemption. In fact, given this state that we read about in Ephesians chapter 2, it does not look good for us. There is nothing promising about us when we read chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Because God's justice must be satisfied. What hope is there? And Paul here says... The hope is in this. In Jesus, there is redemption. 
In Jesus, there is redemption. And it was a redemption through his blood. What does that mean? It means the holy righteous one died in the place of the unholy unrighteous one. He gave his life for sinners that God's justice might be satisfied. God has to penalize sin. And God penalized it in the substitute for those who would trust in Christ. What magnifies the glory of this sacrifice even more is the fact that although Jesus came into the world to do many things. I mean, all you had to do is read the Gospels. What do you see there? You see him opening the eyes of the, of the blind and, and reversing the the deafness of, of those who could not hear, giving the mute ability to speak. He would heal the lame. He would feed the hungry. He would cast out demons. He would even raise the dead. But ultimately, he came to take away our sins. 1 John 3, verse 5, The Son of God appeared to take away our sins. You see, forgiveness implies an offense requiring just punishment for sin. That's what forgiveness implies. Now, I want you to think about this. Romans 6, Paul speaks about this sin. For the Apostle Paul, who's writing Ephesians, sin is a king who reigns. Where do I get that? Romans 6, listen to this, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. When that language of reign is used, that's kingly language. Sin is a king that reigns over the unbeliever. All right? Secondly, Paul says, it's a general whose weapons we have become. Now, where do I get that? Again, Romans 6. Do not present your members... As instruments of unrighteousness to sin. That word instruments. Hopla is the word for weapons. You don't use your members in your body as weapons of unrighteousness to sin. So here sin is a general whose weapons we have become. We are sin's weapons. As he carries out his war on this fallen world. Third, he also speaks of the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. Now think about this. It's not a wage that we pay. It's a wage we receive. Sin is an employer. And the pay system is death. The wages of sin is death. So I want you to imagine that, you, that you've taken citizenship in another country, another kingdom, from the land of your birth. That, that's the picture of a Christian, all right? We've taken citizenship in another kingdom, in another land, if you will, from the land of our birth. And, and so your, your former king comes to you and demands your loyalty. What do you say to your former king? You can rightly say, you no longer have authority over me. I am the citizen 
of another land, another place. Sin no longer reigns over us as our king. Formerly, king, uh, sin was our king. Uh, sin was our owner, our, our general, our, our employer. But sin no longer has claims on us because, Paul says, of divine self-substitution. In Christ, we have redemption. Richard Koken remarks, For God to allow such a sacrifice for our sins is a grace. For God to provide such a sacrifice for our sins is amazing grace. For God to become such a sacrifice for our sins is grace beyond comprehension. You see that? It's one thing just to allow. It's another thing to provide. It's another thing to become. God in Christ became the sacrifice for our sins. It is marvelous, incomprehensible grace. Notice verse 8, which he lavished upon us. I love that, lavished. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verse 8 here expands on the grace mentioned in verse 7. The grace of redemption. And God does this by lavishing. I just love that verb. I'm going to start using it in every sermon, I think. In all wisdom and insight. Now, what does this mean? All wisdom and insight. The Baptist Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism, defines God as a... He is, he is a, uh, a God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom. All right? So we're talking about an infinite, wise God. God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom. In other words, the grace we need for our brokenness, he grants us by his infinite wisdom and insight. And all of you recognize your brokenness. You don't recognize the depth of it. We couldn't handle that. But you recognize your, your brokenness. The grace you need for your brokenness, he lavishes in Jesus Christ with all wisdom and insight. It's remarkable. He knows more about the nature of the horror of our brokenness than, than we do. And he is all wise. He is all insightful to know what we need to compensate for that brokenness. Isn't that a good word? In his son, Jesus Christ. Indeed, in his wisdom, in his insight, he lavished his grace on us by judging the Son in our place. And if God, through the perfect obedience and the perfect sacrifice, the sacrificial death of Jesus, moved our judgment day from the future to the past 
See, that's what redemption is. He moved our judgment day from the future to our past. If he did such a thing, why and how could we ever be cavalier about saying and doing things in our flesh that deserves that judgment? This gospel, he is speaking to believers. I grew up in a tradition that taught that the gospel is only for unbelievers. Actually, the gospel is for believers, and the unbeliever is eavesdropping on a sheep feeding when the unbeliever hears that gospel. Of course, the gospel is the only way to be saved, of course. But this gospel is only good news for who those who believe. This is glorious good news. But this wisdom, th this insight that Paul is speaking of here is showing itself in something much bigger than our personal redemption, as important as that is. And it's much bigger than our personal walks of holiness, as important as that is as well. And that brings us to the mountain peak. I mean, this is the Mount Rainier, all right, of Scripture. Verses 9 and 10. We've seen the blessing of redemption in Christ. And now Paul is going to show us the blessing of the restoration that we have in Jesus Christ in verses 9 and 10. Notice in verse 9. Verse 8, he says, He lavished upon us this grace and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this word mystery, uh, mysterion, if you want to hear the original, mysterion, uh, in Paul's letters, is something that was once hidden but has now been disclosed. Now, the mystery has been, we've been prepared for it as we read the Old Testament. The Old Testament is preparing us for this mystery that is going to be revealed in the person of the God-man, Jesus Christ. But it's a word that occurs 28 times in the New Testament. 21 of those times, it's used by the Apostle Paul. In fact, he will use this word six times in Ephesians. There's six chapters in the letter. There's six times that we see this word, and we're going to be visiting that word a few times in the future. But here in verse 9 and 10, it refers to God's plan for history. And that's why Martin Lloyd-Jones says this is the pinnacle of thought in the Bible. This is the mystery revealed. Now at last made known to us in Jesus Christ. And what is it? To unite all things in Christ. Indeed, this vision is the vision that stamps the rest of Ephesians. We will never get past this mystery, this revealed mystery, even as we continue on in Ephesians. It informs the rest of the letter. 
Now, the word to unite all things, it's a compound word in the original language. What is a compound word? Like apple pie, football, basketball. Those are compound words, grasshopper. Well, in the original language, that word to unite, and let me just be technical for a moment, has a prefix and a suffix. All compound words have a prefix and a suffix. The prefix you would translate again, the word again. The suffix, literally, you would translate to bring to the main point. So you bring the prefix and the suffix together. It's Paul says the mystery revealed in Jesus Christ is to bring the heavens and the earth, that is the created order, back to the main point for which it was created. But has gone off the rails because of sin. Again, that, that, that suffix, to bring to the main point. Let me give you the noun form of that. It's in Hebrews 8.1 where Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews says, this is the main point. We have a great high priest seated at the right hand of God. That's the same, that's the noun version of this suffix. So again, if you want to translate this literally, Paul says the mystery revealed in Jesus Christ is God's purpose to bring everything in heaven and on earth back to the main point for which it was created in the first place. Because it went off the rails because of sin. That means in animate creation, do you think the creation is under a curse? Tsunamis, tornadoes, pandemics. Do you think humanity is under the curse? And what Paul is saying is God has a plan for both the inanimate creation that's under the curse of sin and his fallen image bearers who are under the curse of sin. This has been revealed and it centers on the person of Jesus Christ. What he's saying, broadly speaking, is that God's purpose is to reorder everything that's been broken by sin under submission, in complete submission to Christ. We're going to see that later in chapter 1, where God has placed all things under his feet. All things have been brought in submission under Christ. More specifically, and I, I won't detail this, God created the earth to be his temple. You see this in Genesis 1 when he tells Adam and Eve, Genesis 1 and 2, to fill the earth. The Garden of Eden was his first temple garden. His, you could say the Holy of Holies, if you will. And they were given the commission to extend the borders of the Garden of Eden until the whole earth was one big holy of holy garden city where God's priest kings would worship him and serve him as his vice kings, vice regents, if you will. We went rogue. And Paul is saying that plan has not been forgotten. It's being picked up and will be fulfilled in one man, the God-man, 
Jesus Christ. All things will be brought in submission to him. Now, that does not mean that everyone will be saved. There's a whole lot of scripture that teaches us that there will be many who say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. But it does mean that everyone will bow the knee. Some in worship, like Miss Millie that Barry was speaking of earlier, and others in compulsion, out of compulsion, as those who have been defeated by this holy and righteous king. And there have been so many rulers and counterfeit rulers who have desired that for their own lives, who have planned to unite this world under some global dominion. But they've all failed, and they will continue to fail. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned the fact that if you go to ancient Ephesus today, if you go to the ancient ruins of Ephesus, there, there's the remnant of a statue honoring the Roman emperor Trajan. And if you'll remember, this is, I think, from two weeks ago, this statue was a, was a statue of Trajan with his foot on a globe. That was his goal. He wanted to be the ruler of the world. Well, guess what? I told you there's remnants of that statue. But here's what's the only thing that's left there now. His foot. The globe is missing. And that is a great metaphor for all those who have tried to usurp the purposes of God that are centered on the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, though, that this mystery that has been revealed is already in place. It's already in place. That's why he reminds us, in him you have redemption. The plan has already begun. The plan of restoring, the plan of renewing, it begins with his broken and fallen image bearers. And yet if we're honest, even though we have this mystery revealed at the practical level, it still remains a mystery to us. We see so much brokenness, don't we? And the church seems so weak. The church seems so anemic. We seem so marginalized. It's hard to see that vision in color, isn't it? The writer of Hebrews even makes that point. Hebrews 2 verse 8, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The scripture is very honest. But Paul tells us that plan is in place. And you don't have to see it with your eyes. All you have to do is see it with the eyes of faith. Herman Bovink, in his Doctrine of God, a wonderful volume on the Doctrine of God, says this about this idea. Around about us, we observe so many facts which seem to be unreasonable. So much undeserved suffering. So many unaccountable calamities. Such an uneven and inexplicable distribution of destiny. In such an enormous contrast between the extremes of joy and sorrow that anyone reflecting on these things 
is forced to choose between viewing this universe as if it were governed by the blind will of an unbenign deity or upon the incomprehensible, wise, and holy will of him who will one day cause the full light of heaven to dawn upon these mysteries. That is beautiful, that is glorious, and that is our hope. Until then, we recognize the plan has been inaugurated. In him, we have redemption. The fact that we're sitting here signals the plan is underway. There's no other way to account for your presence here. There's no making sense of it. There's no making sense of my conversion to Christ. I was completely indifferent to him until August the 29th, 1991. And he changed the course of my life by his redeeming blood. And that's your testimony as well. That's why Paul reminds us, you may not see what he's doing, but you've experienced it by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And until then, until the consummation of that day, we rest in this truth from Psalm 33. All his work is done in faithfulness. But here's the question as we close. Why does the Lord reveal this high and glorious mystery to us of what he is ultimately going to do in Jesus Christ? I live in a world, in the, in the world of academics, where it's easy to become a theological Gnostic. Justification by knowledge. All right? Scripture never gives us knowledge so we can be smarter than everybody else in the room. That's a horrific idea of the application of knowledge. When Scripture gives us information, knowledge, a mystery revealed, He's entrusting it to us as stewards. He's expecting our stewardship of this knowledge. And here it is, I believe. Because as we saw at the very opening of our first sermon in Ephesians, the church of Jesus Christ. Now you could talk about the universal church. I hear a lot about the universal church, but let me just let me offer this to you. There is a universal church. But of the 114 times in the New Testament the word church is used, ecclesia, at least 92 of those times it's referring to the local church. And so even though there is a, a, a universal church, every believer at all times, the emphasis, the burden in the New Testament is on the local church. And as we saw at the very beginning... God's plan for the ages to unite all things in Jesus Christ is going to occur. It's going to be achieved at the instrumental level through the local church. That's why Paul is giving us this mystery revealed at the very beginning of a letter that is centered, the most centered letter on Christ church. And I would say this, the church is central in God's plans. But naturally speaking, the church isn't central in our plans. 
It isn't. Most American Christians schedule their church life around everything else. That's what's natural. And Paul says, you've completely missed the point. God is doing something remarkable and glorious. He is uniting all things in heaven and earth in Jesus Christ. And that is going to be achieved instrumentally through his church. That's why he, Paul is giving us this information. God's plan of redemption. God's plan of restoration through his church. In other words, the church is the means towards that end. Indeed, this plan is not a Christless plan. It's not a crossless plan. It's the plan of the ages ushered in by the person and work, the all-sufficient person and work of Jesus Christ, but worked out in and through his church that he purchased with his own blood. As we take this message of redemption, redemption through his blood to our families, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our community, to our city, indeed, to the nations. And that's why Paul entrusts this mystery to us. May we be found faithful with this mystery. Let's pray. Father, thank you. It is a grace that you unveil your personal privacy so that we might be informed, that we might be enlightened, but that we might be entrusted with that mystery revealed. Lord, I want to pray for every Christian in here right now. It is easy, Lord, to get busy in secondary things. Things that are important. But maybe things that are not directly related to your plan of the ages. To unite all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm asking you right now. It's only something you can do. No mere preacher can pull this off. I'm asking right now but that by the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, the third person of the Trinity, and based on the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ, I'm praying right now that your spirit would tether every Christian here, their hearts, to this plan. That, they would, that the, your spirit would tether our affections, our commitments, our priorities to this plan and to the church by which this plan is worked out. Oh, God, would you do that? That's what this culture needs more than anything else. As important as the election is in just a few weeks. This is the plan that's going to stand in the end. Give us grace, Lord, to be tethered to that plan. Grant us by your wisdom and insight what that looks like. At the individual 
at the family level, and certainly at the church level. And Father, if there's anyone here today that's never trusted in Jesus, I pray that they could see that this is the plan that's going to endure for all time. And I pray that by your spirit, you would convict them of their sin, of righteousness and judgment, and their need to bow the knee to Jesus now in worship, gratitude, and love so that they won't bow their knee in, out of compulsion and judgment in the time to come. We pray today would be the day of salvation. We pray that your plan would be worked out in this moment, saving sinners. We ask this today for your son's sake. Amen.